Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Today we're looking at Psalm 16, which we just read out. And really what we're talking about today is contentment and joy. We all want them. We all want contentment and we all want joy. Uh, All the time we're looking for them. Whether someone is a Christian or not, whatever country they come from, uh, whatever age in history, we all look for contentment and joy. The question is, where do we look for it? And where can we find it? Are you content? Would you say you're content? Uh, On a recent uh, day uh, in in, in, in the past month, we, my, my family and I went to Edale, which is in the Peak District, and the, the sun was shining, and the heather's out. If you haven't uh, been out to the Peak District, now's the time to go. The heather is out, and everything's beautiful and purple, so here we were, uh, walking in this valley, and the stream's flowing, and the sun's shining, and my wife's smiling, and the kids are playing by the stream, and it was a moment of real contentment. We have moments of contentment, maybe like after you've eaten a beautiful, big feast, and you sit back and you feel content, you feel satisfied. But what about this deep and lasting contentment? It's harder to come by, isn't it? Where do we find it? Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, a long time ago, wrote a book called The Rare Joy of Christian Contentment. Rare jewel, jewel of Christian contentment. Why is contentment such a rare jewel, even for Christians? Why is that? Why is it? that we perhaps aren't nearly as content as we could be or should be as, as followers of Christ. What's the problem? Well, in Psalm 16, we see reasons why, as believers, we can be deeply, truly, enjoy, enduringly content. The good news of the gospel is that God is passionate about your joy, that God is committed to your joy. That's what it means, that he loves you. He's committed to your joy. He died to secure your eternal joy. That's what the gospel is about. And that's what this psalm is about. And so our big lesson today is this. Joy and contentment flow from having Christ alone as our daily portion and eternal prize. That he's our satisfaction today and forever. Christ alone, nothing else. Joy and contentment, lasting joy and contentment flow from having Christ alone as our portion and prize. Here's our structure, our outline. Four points today. And here they are. Now, I'm sorry I tried to put these in a little catchy mnemonic for you the way you could remember but I failed and so here they are look away from your present circumstances that's the first one all these come out of the psalm it's not a self-help thing they all come out of the scriptures this is God's word second one get rid of your idols third one set the Lord always before you as your treasure and the fourth one place your hope fully in Christ's resurrection so there's the four and that's where the psalm takes us today So the first one, look away from your present circumstances. This is the first of six psalms of David called Miktams. Um, Psalm 16 is the first and the others are Psalm 56 to 60. And we don't exactly know what this word means. Some think it means a secret psalm. Some think it means a secret treasure, like something, a private psalm perhaps or a golden psalm. We're not exactly sure. Some think it was a musical term. But one thing that's common about all of these psalms is that David is crying out to God in a desperate situation. 
And so we get a little caption on some of these psalms at the top that describes what's going on. We don't get that for this psalm. We don't exactly know what's going on. But have a look at verse 1. You can see that David is in some kind of danger. He's in a desperate situation. So he says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Keep me safe. Preserve me. His life is in some sort of danger. Don't know what that danger is. But just flick over, if you want, to Psalm 56 and we'll have a look at the the blurb on a couple of these psalms and you can see what's going on here in different situations of these miktam psalms. Psalm 56, it says, sorry, I don't have a page number for you. Psalm 56, it says, when the Philistines had seized him in Gath. Verse 1 says, Be merciful to me, O God, for men hotly pursue me. Um, Psalm 57, When he had fled from Saul into a cave. When the king of a country is personally after you with his army to destroy you, you're in strife. So here is David hiding in a cave and saying, Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. Not the cave, but in God himself. He's fleeing to God. Psalm 59. We don't get a context of Psalm 58. Psalm 59. When Saul sent men to watch over David's house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me. And it looks like Psalm 60 is triumphant, but actually he's crying out in desperation again. Lord, why have you abandoned us in our battles? So there's a desperate situation going on each time. What's David's response in each situation? He cries out to the Lord. He cries out to the Lord in desperation. His eyes, where do they look? They look away from his circumstances and to God for deliverance. He turns his eyes away from his present circumstances. So this is our first lesson. And we get this over and over in the Psalms. The lesson that the Psalms teach us is when circumstances are overwhelming, when you're in trouble, You look to the Lord, you turn your eyes away from your circumstances and you flee to God. What do we often tend to do when we're in strife, in difficult circumstances? What are we tempted to do? We often complain to people. The Psalms are all about complaining to God. You can do that as much as you like. It's all through the scriptures. But what we do is we complain to people instead. Or perhaps, what else do we do? We stew inwardly, we become bitter or resentful. We start blaming people or God. We become self-pitying maybe. We get completely stressed out perhaps and start coming up with a plan to deliver ourselves. Maybe we despair or become angry with God. That's not the response of faith. What do the Psalms teach us to do instead? They teach us to look away from our troubles and to the Lord. Well, you know, we're trained to do this in other ways. Think about when you're driving a car. Think about the busiest intersection of traffic that you've ever seen. Imagine driving up. What do you do? Do you watch the traffic to see a gap in the traffic and just gun it? What do you do? You know what to do and it's quite simple. You look at the traffic lights and you wait for them and you trust them and when it's green off you go. It's very simple. But how weak I am and how poorly trained I am at looking to the Lord instead of my circumstances when things are overwhelming. That's what we need to do. That's what the Psalms teach us. And we see in this psalm that whatever David's situation is, one verse is spent on his troubles and the rest of the psalm, the other ten are spent on looking to the Lord and what he gets in his relationship with the Lord. 
If you seek lasting satisfaction, don't look to your circumstances. Look to the Lord. What's the purpose of these difficult circumstances that the Lord brings into your life? What's he doing? He's actually weaning you off this world and dependence on this world for your satisfaction. And we, if you look at David's life in you know, 1 and 2 Samuel, what, what do you see happening? He's strongest in faith when his troubles are the greatest. When his life gets easy and good, he starts falling into temptation. The Lord has a bigger purpose for you than just your contentment in this present world. He's got a bigger eternal vision for you, your eternal joy. Think about Paul when he wrote the book of Philippians. He was writing from Italy, writing from Rome. He wasn't in, a, in an Italian villa sipping a Chianti and eating antipasto. He was in prison. And what does he say in chapter 4, verse 11 and 12? He says, I have learnt to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He learnt through his hardships to be content apart from circumstance. Why? Because he had Christ and we need to learn the same. So that's point one. Look away from your circumstances. Point two, get rid of your idols. We sometimes play card games, don't we, where the object, object of the game is to get the best hand you can. And so we, uh, we try and get the winning hand. Games like Monopoly Deal or maybe versions of Blackjack or Poker where you throw out the bad card and pick up another one and gradually improve your hand until you win. An enormous common trap that we fall into is that, and this is tragic for us as Christians, is we actually think that that's the way our life works. That's where we get contentment from. And consider the deal of cards that we get. Now I'm going I'm to pull out my deck of cards here, my Aussie Outback playing cards. <laughs> Educational fun. And uh, let's see how we go here. So let's say this is our hand. Here's Kyra Koala. Okay, <laughs> Bo Bilby. A lot of fun here to be had. Okay. So here's my hand. And we often view our life like this. We consider the cards that we have in life. We've been dealt from the Lord. This is my relationships card. And this is my possessions and money card. And here's my work and career card. And here's my achievements and recognition card. And this is my health card. And here's my body image card. And this here is my holiday and leisure card, and so on. And so we look at our, our deal of cards that the Lord's given us, and we, we base our satisfaction on the quality of these, and maybe we compare. Either in um, envy, it's like, <laughs> or in smugness, <laughs> you know, and we, we feel quite proud. Or if we don't like something, we think our objective is to get rid of it, the one card, and pick up a better card, don't we? That's the lie that we believe as Christians as well. It's a common trap, and we'll never find contentment there. Now picture your deal. What's your deal of cards? What's your circumstances? What is it that you're really content with, happy with about those circumstances? What is it that you're really dissatisfied with in there? Maybe you're single, and you desperately would love to get married. That's, it's okay to want to be married, by the way. Or maybe you're in a job you don't really enjoy and it's okay to want a better job. Or maybe you're living in a place or stuck in a situation you're just not happy in. Maybe there are health problems in your life. 
Whatever it is, uh, those, it's okay to want a different thing, but the, the issue is our satisfaction is not found in improving those deal of cards. We just don't find it there. So what's your response? The danger is that we fall into that lie of trying to improve our hand. The lie in a nutshell is, I'll be happy, I know I've got Jesus, but I'll be happy if I can get X, whatever X is. I, I, I think this way so often. How about you? I'll be happy if I can get X. And when we believe this, what happens is those wants start to become needs. The things that we want start to become things that we think we need. When that happens, we start ordering our priorities on those things. I want this change. And so I start ordering my priorities on it. Other things drop on the priority list and all of a sudden I'm making sacrifices to this thing. When you make sacrifices to something, you have a God. This is when we start worshipping idols. Not physical idols, but idols that we make priorities out of. I need enough money to buy this house. I'm going to set my priorities around that. Or I am going to get out of this job, whatever I do, and get this better job. Whatever it is uh, that we pursue and order our priorities around and our decisions, that becomes a God to us. So do you have false gods in your life? Do you have idols in your life? Have a look at verse 2. What truth does the psalm speak into this? I said to the Lord, to Yahweh, Yahweh, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. We could rephrase this by saying, there's no satisfaction to be had apart from God himself. We could say in other ways, I could gain all these other things in the world. I could get the perfect deal of cards and if I don't have Yahweh, I've got nothing. No satisfaction at all. Jesus said similar, didn't he? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or Paul says in Philippians, similarly, I consider everything rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Look at verse 4. At what happens when we set our hope in idols? The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. Uh, they multiply. Our sorrows multiply. This is, it says there, yep, that our sorrows will increase. Here's a simple rule of life for us. When you pursue idols, you multiply your misery. When you live for the satisfaction in this world, you multiply your misery. This is where idols lead us. The Lord wants our joy and so he calls us to forsake our idols. A great passage, Psalm 81, it's another psalm, and this is the Lord crying out to his people, to us, to listen to him on this. And he says, Hear me, my people. Psalm 81, 8 to 10. And I will warn you, if only you would listen to me, Israel. You shall have no foreign God among you. You shall not worship any other God than me. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. He's saying, listen to me and I'll give you satisfaction. Stop looking to false gods. The question is, will you listen to him? Will you trust him? Will you base your priorities around finding a satisfaction in him? And if you don't, there's no lasting joy for you. So that's the challenge for us. So forsake your idols. What does our psalmist do? Look at the second half of verse 4. It says, I will not pour out their libations of blood. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. A libation is a drink offering. It's a kind of a sacrifice. Israel did it. Pagan worshippers did it. It's a way of worshipping a God. David's saying, I'm not going to get involved in the worship of false gods. In fact, 
He's not even going to speak of them. He says, I won't even mention their names on my lips. He's not going to have anything to do with them. So the Bible teaches us to be ruthless about dealing with our false gods, dealing with our idols. Are you ruthless about dealing with your idols? The path to joy and contentment isn't a breezy stroll. It won't just fall into our laps. It's a life and death struggle. There are enemies on this path for us. Uh, Our flesh is opposed to it. Uh, the, The world is opposed to it. Satan's opposed to it. We can't afford to toy around with sin. Remember Jesus' words. He says, even if your hand or your eye causes you to sin, get rid of it. It's better to enter life without these things than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So it's serious that we deal with sin. Take serious measures. Romans 13, 14 says, Clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not even think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So are you serious about dealing with idols in your heart? Are there things in the world that you're hinging your joy upon and how are you dealing with those things? What might this look for you? If you've got an unhealthy dependence on money, what can you do about that? Maybe you need to give more away. If you've got an unhealthy dependence on food for your comfort, maybe you need to fast. Maybe you need to cut out certain eating habits. Uh, What about the habit of going to the screen or um, Facebook just for your entertainment or to find that? Maybe you need to stop that for a month and see what that does to your passion for God again. You'll find your joy in the Lord returning again. So deal with your idols. Do something about it. Get, get some accountability from your brothers and sisters and, uh, and deal with those. Get rid of them. A great test of our hearts is what we love. What is it that our hearts love? And you can see here that David loves God's people. He's passionate about God's people. He loves what God loves and he hates what God hates. That's a good test of our hearts. Have a look at verse 3. As for the holy people in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. David loves God's people. It's a good mark of a person with a healthy faith is that they love God's church. They're passionate about not just their own faith, but the faith of others. How are you doing in that? You're passionate about the faith of your brothers and sisters. Are you delighting in God's family? Do you love the church for which Christ died? You know, Paul in the the book of the Thessalonians, he'd only met them like for three weeks, two or three weeks. And he says in 1 Thessalonians 3, Now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. That joy is really hinged into the, the, how the people of God are doing. That's a good sign for our hearts too. So, We love what God loves and we hate what he hates. We get rid of our idols. So we've seen that we don't look to our circumstances. We get rid of our idols. Point three, we set the Lord always before us as our treasure. Now think back to our card game. When I was a kid, I played lots of games. Uh, Lots of them, as we do, involving dice or random, you know, draws of cards or spinning the wheel or whatever. Um, And my most unfavourite response from people, usually from girls for whatever reason, was, you know, it's just a game because I get far too absorbed in these games. And it was like my whole happiness in life depended on winning these things. And so if I didn't get the deal that I wanted, I'd be complaining about my bad luck and how different things would be if I got the luck that this person got. And if I got the roles that I wanted, I'd assume it was all down to my great gaming ability. And often we see life like this. 
we respond to the, the deal that's, that God's handed us in life and we compare, as I said, we envy. If only I had their hand. If I had the deal that this person had, then I'd be happy. Then things would be different. How are we to respond as people of God? Look at verses 5 and 6. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. The language here is the language of God dealing something out, isn't it? It talks about a lot and a portion. And the imagery here is probably of God allocating land to the 12 tribes of Israel. You know that those back in the book of Joshua when they took the promised land, whether they drew straws or they rolled dice or whatever they did, uh, the land was allocated by lot. They drew out lots. And I, I suppose some allocations of land were better than others. Uh, maybe some bordered enemy uh, tribes and were more hotly contested than others. Some were more fertile than others. What is this saying? What's the deal that we have received from the Lord? What's our lot as God's people? We've got, verse 6, a delightful inheritance. It couldn't be better. It's secure. The land we've been given, the lot we've been dealt by God as believers in Christ is secure. It's wonderful. It's delightful. It couldn't be better. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. This is not random chance, by the way. This is God's sovereign, kind purpose to you. He specifically has come after you to give you that blessing and that portion. That's what it means that he's chosen us and elected us. And what's this delightful inheritance we've received? What is it that we can be joyful about as Christians? What, what is this inheritance? What makes us so blessed? Is it that we've been saved from eternal destruction? Absolutely. Is it that we inherit a new heaven and earth? Is it that we've been given new hope and purpose? Is it that uh, we have been freed from the present reign of sin? All those things, but that actually isn't the ultimate prize. What's the ultimate prize? Look at verse 5. Yahweh, you alone are my portion and my cup. All those other things are wonderful blessings that we get, but the ultimate prize of the gospel is God himself. That's the ultimate prize. Him alone. We're saved to possess God himself. He's a, he alone is our portion and our cup. Think about Abraham. What made Abraham so blessed? Was it his great supply of cattle and servants and wealth? Was it his beautiful wife? Was it the promise that he got of having a great name? What was it that made Abraham so blessed? Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, Abraham, I am your shield, your very great reward. As children of Abraham, that's true of us too. We've been given his promise. God is our great reward. That's thrilling. Maybe that promise isn't all that thrilling to you. Maybe getting God himself uh, isn't all that thrilling to you. Maybe you can imagine a heaven without God in it. What's the problem? I would expect the issue is, if you're a believer and you're struggling to be thrilled with gaining God as your eternal inheritance, then I would suggest that perhaps, I would expect you're not in the word nearly enough. You're not taking in God's words nearly enough. That would be my guess. We need the scriptures to kindle our passion for the Lord again and to remind us. Have a look at verses 7 and 8. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. 
How does the Lord instruct David? How is the Lord instructing him? Even at night, which could mean evening, it could mean the dark seasons of life. How is the Lord teaching David? It's not just, truth isn't just coming out of his heart. He's being taught, he's heard the scriptures. He's, he's being sustained in his faith and he's being reminded of what inheritance he has by what he's heard from God's word. What about you? What's teaching you? Where, to, where are you getting your teaching from about where to find contentment? Is it from the world? Get more stuff, whatever. We, wherever you find it, we find it in the scriptures. We find the truth in the scriptures. That's where we get clarity on the hand we've been dealt and realise that we possess God alone. God, the word reminds us we've got something infinitely better than anything we could have in this life. The glorious God, the eternal King, the Redeemer, the Shepherd, the Almighty, we belong to him. So we realise, look at verse 8, we realise from the scriptures that God is for us, that this Almighty God is at our right hand. The symbol there is that he's our strength. God is our strength. Where do you look to for strength? Um, we maybe look to our finances. Uh, we look to our relationships, maybe our wits and our plans or our earthly comforts. If Yahweh is at our right hand, we can't be shaken. If he's our strength, then we really have security. There's a lot in this psalm about security. Security is a critical part of contentment, isn't it? If you feel insecure, it's hard to be content. But this psalm, all over it is we've got the Lord, therefore we're eternally secure. We can be content. Verse 8 says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. Literally, it says here, I have set the Lord always before me. So this is a key part of contentment right here is that we set the Lord always before us. We constantly have him in view. Are you serious about pursuing joy? If you are, then you need to keep the Lord before you all the, always, daily in the word, daily reminding yourself of the truth from scripture about the inheritance you have persistently. We have to strive for it and fight for daily time in the word. So how is your time in the scriptures? And what does it say about how earnestly you're pursuing joy in the Lord? Does your time in the scriptures reflect a trust in God that this is where I find joy? This is where I find it, in, in God alone. What does your use of time tell you about how you find, where you find joy and contentment? Now, we need to live as people of faith and trust God that he is all satisfying and be in the word every day. All right, last point. You're doing really well to stick with me here. We've got an extra point. I know I'm naughty. I should just have three. What's our fourth point? It is that we place our hope fully in the resurrection. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given when Jesus Christ is revealed, it says in Peter, 1 Peter. Excellent hope brings great joy. I remember times... Uh, back when I was living in Australia and part of my job was to go to America for a couple of weeks for a conference every year. And I remember those joyful times of flying back and arriving into my hometown uh, on the plane and see, you know, you're flying over the city and you see it and you know you're going to be landing very shortly and you're going to see your family very shortly. Brings great joy, that certainty, I'm going to see them again really soon. The anticipation and that joy of knowing I'm going to see them brings real joy. Real joy, it changes everything. And it's another reason why we can be really joyful as believers is that we have this certainty, this certain hope of the resurrection, of being with Christ forever, that we're going to see the Lord soon. 
that we have that certain hope. Have a look at verses 9 and 10. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. Death is not the end. God's not going to abandon us to the realm of the dead. We've got hope in this resurrection. Actually, being mindful of the resurrection gives us great joy. Our heart is glad and our, our tongue rejoices. Where do we get a glad heart and, and praise that overflows when we've, we're thinking about the resurrection and the hope that Christ has won for us? And we have in these verses a strong prediction of the resurrection of the Messiah. All, we know that all scriptures point to the Son. But some Psalms, lots of Psalms point to the Son and some more clearly and directly than others. It's, it's right there. And this is one of those passages. And you know, Peter and Paul in the book of Acts refer specifically to these verses to prove that Jesus Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Uh, you, you can see this, for example, in Acts chapter 2. And at Pentecost, Peter gets up to speak to the crowds and he actually quotes directly from verses of this Psalm. And I'll just we'll put this up here, Acts 2, 29 to 32. And this is how Peter, better that Peter explains this psalm to you than, I, than me. So let's read this out. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. But God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. And Paul argues similarly in Acts chapter 13. Is that what's, what's Peter saying? He's saying, we know that David died, and he, his body decayed in the tomb like everybody else. But David's writing here about someone who didn't decay. Didn't, his body didn't decay. He won't let his faithful one see decay. So he's talking about someone else. He's not talking about himself. David is predicting by the Holy Spirit of one who is to come, who is going to die and not be in the tomb long enough for his body to decay. He's talking about the Messiah who was to rise on the third day. It's a prediction of Jesus' resurrection. So what does this mean? It means that we have a sure hope in the resurrection. We can have a glad heart. Our tongue can overflow with praise. So your eternity is completely secure. So are you keeping the resurrection before you? Are you keeping your hope before you? What are you setting your hope on? Are you setting your hope fully on the Lord's return and being with him forever? Here's the beautiful promise of this psalm. Have a look at verse 11, the last verse. What a privileged people we are. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. That's the good news of the gospel. Eternal pleasures for you because you gain Christ. That's the hope that we have. Got the best reason in the world to be content. So here's the goal of our faith. It says in Peter, you are filled with an inexpressible and a glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And see there how it says, you have, you've made known to me the path of life. It's not just talking about an awareness of the gospel. It's talking about God has put it, it's an experiential thing. God has put us on this path. This is the path we're walking on by his grace. And the destination of that path is eternal life with him. And when we grasp that, joy and contentment flow in.
So it's a great privilege and mercy to be people of God. But the battle for us is we've got to fight for contentment and joy by coming back to these four things. Coming back to the four things that the scriptures teach us again and again. Look away from your circumstances. Throw away your idols. Set the Lord always before you as your treasure. And place your hope fully in the resurrection of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've won for us this kingdom that cannot be shaken. And you've given us uh, yourself. Lord, the great joy of the gospel isn't just that we've been saved from eternal punishment. Although that is magnificent and wonderful beyond belief. But you save us from eternal punishment to something. You save us to the, the great reward of having you, possessing you forever, that you're our great reward, you're our portion. Uh, Lord, you're our cup. If that's the cup we've been given, it overflows. Um, Lord, may we see this clearly so that we'll be overflowing with thankfulness. We'll be thankful and content people. We pray as a church that that might characterise us. We'd be satisfied in you to the point where people around us would see us as a body of people who are satisfied with whatever circumstances, that they would see that you, Lord Jesus, are a great treasure, that they would see that we have this eternal joy uh, that doesn't come from this world, that that might be attractive to those who don't know you. Lord, may we fight for joy, may we spur one another on toward joy and contentment in you. May we remind each other, point each other to where we'll find it and away from those places we foolishly look uh, and fail to find it. Lord, uh, give us grace to pursue you in your word every day. May we be earnest about this and may we spur one another on faithfully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.